Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. After weeks of bad headlines and pressure, Harvard's president is stepping down. The lead starts right now. Dr. Claudine Gay is out as the president of Harvard University. Was it that poorly received congressional testimony about anti-Semitism on campus? Or how about the mounting accusations of plagiarism? What we are learning today from Harvard Insiders. Plus, a deadly airport runway inferno. Two planes collide. Five on one jet killed. Nearly 400 on another escaped alive. How did the planes end up on the same runway in the first place? And a senior leader of Hamas, assassinated apparently in an explosion in Beirut. Hezbollah has warned Israelis that any such action in Lebanon would merit a response. Is the situation in the Middle East about to get even worse? Happy New Year and welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper and we start this hour with breaking news. Harvard University's Dr. Claudine Gay is stepping down as president, resigning after just about six months on the job. The student journalist who broke the story of her stepping down for the Harvard Crimson newspaper noted that this is the shortest presidential tenure in Harvard's august history. It has been quite a tumultuous month for the now ousted president from her Infamous response when asked if calling for the genocide of Jews would violate Harvard's campus's code of conduct. Yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. From that to multiple allegations of plagiarism, many of which she and the university had to acknowledge and make corrections to. Now, no reason was mentioned as to why Dr. Gay is stepping down in her resignation Note, part of which says, quote, it is in the best interests of Harvard for me to resign so that our community can navigate this moment of extraordinary challenge with a focus on the institution rather than any individual. Dr. Gay went on to say, quote, amidst all of this, it has been distressing to have doubt cast on my commitments to confronting hate and to upholding scholarly rigor, two bedrock values that are fundamental to who I am. And it has been frightening to be subjected to personal attacks and threats fueled by racial animus. CNN's Matt Egan starts off our coverage on Dr. Gay's resignation. And Matt, what, what more do we know about this seemingly sudden move, considering Harvard uh, and its board have been publicly standing behind Dr. Gay for the past month? Well, Jake, clearly this is a very difficult moment for one of the most prestigious universities on the planet. They've now decided to accept the resignation of Claudine Gay, the uh, first black president in Harvard's nearly 400-year history, just the second woman to ever lead this university. And as you noted, it was just three weeks ago that the Harvard Corporation, the school's top board, They voiced their unanimous support for Gay. Now they're accepting her resignation. Let me read you what the corporation said in a statement. They said that 
Gay has shown, quote, remarkable resilience in the face of deeply personal and sustained attacks. While some of this has played out in the public domain, much of it has taken the form of repugnant and in some cases racist vitriol directed at her through disgraceful emails and phone calls. Now, the Harvard Corporation, they said that they're accepting this resignation with sorrow. They did note that Gay, she acknowledged some of her missteps along the way. Still, though, all of this raises the question, what changed over the last three weeks? Now, we know that the plagiarism uh, scandal around Gay has only escalated. Uh, there's been this drip, drip, drip of revelations. Lawmakers have been demanding a mountain of documents from Harvard, and mega donors have pulled their funding. And so, after all of this, the board and Claudine Gay decided that her presidency after just six months is over. What more do we know about the interim president? So the interim president is Alan Garber. He's the um, provost. He's been the provost for Harvard for the last dozen years or so. Um, he's an economist and a physician by training. He was previously at Stanford. Now we don't know how long Garber's going to be uh, at the helm. Harvard has not announced uh, just when they're going to launch their search for a new president. But what is clear is that Garber and whoever the new president is, they're stepping into a mess. They're going to face a tall task here in trying to um, clean up the situation, trying to uh, fix the Harvard brand, which has clearly taken a hit. I mean, the school has seen early applications drop. As I mentioned, donors have revolted. Lawmakers have really strongly criticized the university. And you have a lot of parents and students and alumni who are worried about the future of this brand. This is not going to be an easy task. Jake? All right, Matt Egan, thanks so much. With us now is Harvard history professor Allison Frank. Uh, Johnson. She's one of the hundreds of uh, professors and uh, others who signed a December 12th letter urging Harvard University to keep Dr. Gay uh, as president. Uh, Professor, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Uh, first of all, what, what's your reaction to the news of her resignation? Well, my first reaction was frankly shock. I didn't expect her to make this uh, decision at this time. The letter you signed urged officials to... Um, to res resist calls to remove President Gay in order to defend the independence of the university and to resist political pressures that are at odds with Harvard's commitment to, to academic freedom. Um, do you think, this is not necessarily a contradiction, but do you think her answers in that congressional hearing were at all problematic? Yes, I do think that they were quite problematic. I think that they were... Um, that the, the, the testimony was a disaster. Um, I watched hours of the testimony and I can understand, I think what she was trying to say in a larger context, but it really was a very unfortunate choice of words um, in the clip that you played. And, uh, and it, was, it, was, it was not, it didn't do justice to her or to the university. That's true. How, how much do you think these pr the, the, the problem was these, um suggestions uh, of uh, plagiarism, uh, some of which have been dismissed as minor, others of which uh, obviously merited a, a statement from Harvard's board and also from Dr. Gay uh, amending previous uh, academic works. And, and the question of, um, as I'm sure must concern you as a professor, any perceived double standard. Um, you don't, no university wants uh, students to think that that if they get accused of plagiarism, that there's hypocrisy at foot? Absolutely not. This is actually essential. So I, uh, I, I think 
asking a president to resign because congressional leaders don't like their testimony, it, that's not something that I support. Uh, a president found to have committed serious acts of research misconduct or scholarly misconduct, including, including um, forms of plagiarism, very might well be asked to resign. But unfortunately, we didn't see here an actual investigation consistent with Harvard's procedures for dealing with faculty research misconduct. So, you know, we've had instances in the past where prominent, well-respected faculty have been accused of plagiarism. We've had instances, you know, they, they then, there's a faculty committee that's formed, there's a serious investigation into their actions according to the highest scholarly standards, and then appropriate actions are taken, which can include apologies, which can include corrections, which can include you know, censure. Um, and that's actually the kind of response I would have liked to see. So not a statement from a governing board, which isn't composed of academics and scholars, and I don't know on what by what standards they decided that, um, you know, how, the, how did they decide if something's a serious issue or not, but rather using the procedures that are already in place at Harvard, and, and that wasn't done. New York Congresswoman, uh, Republican Elise Stefanik, released a statement today um, saying Gay, Dr. Gay's answers about anti-Semitism on college campuses, quote, were absolutely pathetic and devoid of the moral leadership and academic integrity required of the president of Harvard. This is just the beginning of what will be the greatest scandal of any college or university uh, in history, unquote. Um, you're a history professor. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, well, I'm not sure what she means. I don't know what scandal she knows is about to unfold that I'm not aware of. Certainly, my own historical research leads me to believe that independent universities, independent from outside political influence, are one of the most critical elements of a thriving democracy. And so for me, the danger here would be to lose our independent universities, um, to have a second kind of um, McCarthyite attack on universities and their scholarship uh, based on political motives of any kind. So that is a greater fear to me than, um, than uh, whatever mysterious scandal uh, the representative believes is unfolding. Uh, lastly, uh, Professor, um, I've seen a lot of uh, prominent African-American voices on social media in the last hour or so, uh, including Mr. Kendi, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, others, um, uh, talking about uh, the racist, uh, we shouldn't just call it racial, racist animus against her. I, I don't think it's fair to say all of her critics were racist, but certainly a few of them were. Uh, and I'm wondering how much you think that had to do with what happened today. Well, I don't like to impugn such terrible motives to people, but there are people who have come straight out and said that they believe that Claudine Gay, you know, before the plagiarism allegations even came out, that they believe Claudine Gay was only appointed because she's black, because she's a woman, but especially because she's black. And, um, you know, those kinds of allegations really don't have any place in uh, rational and reasoned conversations about the qualifications of a university president. So I think we can't, when people say that out loud, we can't deny um, we can't deny that that's playing a role. I wouldn't want to accuse any individual person who doesn't come out and say it that that's their motivation. But there are plenty of people who do. Um, I'm getting hate mail myself. Um, people, I just actually, while I was waiting to come on with you, opened an email from someone demanding my resignation mm -hmm. because I've spoken out. Uh, on behalf of Claudine 
gay, although really on behalf of Harvard and its independence and its procedures and processes more than on behalf of any individual person. And I can't even imagine what she's had to face. I don't like to think about it, actually. No, it's probably pretty ugly. And you yourself might want to stay off email and social media for the next few hours. Uh, Professor Allison Frank Johnson, uh, thank you so much for talking to us today. Really appreciate it. And, and obviously, uh, thinking about the Harvard campus today, it must be a difficult place to be right now. Let's bring in Frederick Lawrence, the former president of Brandeis University, who we talked a lot about um, this I don't know if scandal is the right word, but this controversy. Um, do you think Dr. Gay's resignation was inevitable? Um, and if so, was it because of the testimony or because of the plagiarism allegation? I think it was the plagiarism allegation. I think the testimony obviously was something we've talked about before and got a lot of attention. But my own view is that if it were only that, she would have been able to ride this out. I think the answer that she gave on the question about anti-Semitism was not a good answer, and we've talked about that before as well. That wouldn't have cost her her job. I think the plagiarism allegation is what really stuck, and because it didn't go away, and because there was this sense of continuing investigations of that, I, I think it made it inevitable. Well, it certainly kept Harvard in the headlines for the wrong reasons, Correct. which is not anything that any university wants. Uh, Dr. Gay says in her resignation statement that she's going to return to the faculty. Um, is that a good idea, do you think? I think in the short term it is, and I think right now she can't think beyond the short term, and I think... The university will help her get through this next period. I'm sure she will be uh, able to spend a sabbatical time with the faculty and sort of think about what's happened to her, and then we'll see what happens from there. Um, I guess the other question I have is, like, even though this is the, she has resigned is the official policy as to what happened. The, the, the news was broken by the Harvard Crimson as a result of her letter. Um, but generally speaking, she probably didn't resign, right? I mean, she probably was told by whatever Harvard board exists, the board of governors or whatever, you, you need to resign. I think she and the corporation have been talking for the past couple of weeks. Just because we haven't heard anything doesn't mean there wasn't discussion going on. And my sense is there probably was discussion about what the terms of her stepping down would look like. They must have agreed on what the statement was the corporation would make, the statement was that she would make. And it gave the corporation a chance also to think about next steps. I, I will tell you, I think the selection of Alan Garber as the interim president is an inspired choice. Alan is a uh, highly regarded academic in a number of fields. I also have the privilege of having known him when I was president of Brandeis. He was already the provost of Harvard, and we got to know each other during that time. He's not only an extraordinarily well-qualified well academic, uh, but he's a decent person, a fine person. I think he is as well-qualified as anyone could be to get Harvard through this next very difficult well, period. Yeah, he's going to have a, he's gonna have a tough, uh, tough job. He will indeed. All right, Frederick Lawrence, always good to see you. Thanks Pleasure. for coming in. Happy New Year to you. Coming Thank up you. next... What new audio just coming in reveals about that deadly crash between a passenger plane and a Coast Guard aircraft in Japan? We are also standing by for a new court filing from Donald Trump's legal team. How will he respond to those two states that have removed him from their 2024 ballots? Turning to our world lead now, reeling from one tragedy, Japan is now having to deal with another tragedy after an aircraft involved in earthquake relief efforts burst into flames. Dramatic video shows the moment a Japan Airlines plane ignited into a fireball as it collided with a Japanese Coast Guard aircraft. 379 passengers and crew were able to evacuate with only 17 passengers reporting injuries from the collision. However, five crew members on board the Coast Guard plane were killed. 
An investigation is now underway to determine who is responsible for that deadly crash. Let's bring in CNN's Pete Montine. And Pete, uh, you have some new reporting about air traffic control calls. Tell us more. Well, this really sort of lays out that the Japan Airlines crew was told to land on the same runway, 3-4 right, and they read back that transmission to air traffic control. So it really sort of paints a picture here that maybe there was confusion on the part of the Coast Guard aircraft. Why they were in that spot is still unclear, and it's something that investigators will really want to know as they dig into this. This Japan Airlines flight, 379 people on board flight 516 an airbus a350 slammed right into this dash 8 from the japan coast guard a dash 8 a twin turboprop airplane big questions now about who is in the wrong place at the wrong time and it's something that we have seen over and over again in the united states it's a wake-up call around the world but in the u.s we have seen these incidents known as runway collisions and in mostly close calls in the United States. Seven of them were investigated by the National Transportation Safety Board. The closest such one was a FedEx flight that almost landed on a Southwest Airlines flight coming into land in Austin last February. Of course, none of these incidents ended with airplanes crunching into each other that led to injuries or fatalities. In this case, five people on board the Coast Guard aircraft were killed. We know at last check, the captain of that flight was in critical condition. But this air traffic control audio, Jake, really buttresses what Japan Airlines says. They say that their crew was in the right place at the right time. They were told to land on runway 34 right at Haneda, a pretty complicated airport, multiple runways that crisscross one another. And this has been the issue where people have, pilots have been confused about where they are on the airport. And that can lead to really dangerous situations, although none of them in the U.S. have led to something as dramatic as this one. Now, where does this investigation go from here? Well, the French are involved in this investigation because they have this uh, airplane. It's a French-made Airbus. Japan is leading it right now, although there are a lot of uh, investigators around the world descending on Tokyo to sort of figure this out. And so, of course, they will want to know, uh, really, the air traffic control audio is key, who was told to go where and when. And there is clearly an error here. Uh, this really sort of flies in the face of the safety culture that Japan school children are taught about it from the very beginning. Uh, this is really a huge thing in Japan, uh, the safety culture, especially when it comes to transportation. Uh, we know that uh, bullet trains speed through Japan with incredible safety and incredible on-time reliability. Um, but for this to happen uh, to Japan Airlines, which had a spate of incidents in the 80s and 90s and then cleaned up its act, is really pretty incredible. And it really also is a testament to the crew uh, that this evacuation went so smoothly. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. Let's turn to the massive rescue effort underway in western Japan, where today we're seeing new scenes of devastation after yesterday's powerful 7.5 earthquake that officials say killed at least 57 people. Japan's prime minister says it's a race against time to rescue those still trapped underneath the rubble. CNN's Hanako Montgomery has the latest. It's been more than a day since the powerful quake. But for Minae and her mother, the impact still very fresh. Thinking about it now still makes me tremble. My heart was pounding. My mind went blank. We just scrambled, things like our wallets, and ran outside. Minae was visiting her family for New Year's when the quake struck. Her mother's house now unlivable because of the powerful impact. The pair, luckily, able to escape unharmed. But with the constant aftershocks, they're still far from safe. I feel like even now the building is shaking. Whenever an aftershock happens, I think of the main quake and my body trembles. 
But it's not just the tremors people here have to worry about. Other than a roof, there's little else. There is no heating right now, so people are sleeping on mats. They're using thick blankets to stay warm. There's also no running water, so the Japanese self-defense forces are just outside this building, handing out water to locals. This water, a lifeline for dozens here and thousands across the region. Left without supply or simply without homes after Monday's powerful quake. The devastation difficult to comprehend at night, but clearly visible from the sky. In Wajima, the shock flipping multi-story buildings on their side and raising entire blocks to the ground. Tsunami waves forcing large vessels onto the shore and fires adding to the destruction. Amid it all, authorities desperately searching for the dozens still trapped beneath the rubble. Prime Minister Kishida instructed us to once again put lives first, understand the situation of the damages, and make an utmost effort to save people in emergency rescue operations. After a long and cold night with several aftershocks, it's now morning here in Japan, Jake. This is now the second full day that rescue operations are underway to find those remaining survivors. But authorities and emergency medical personnel are finding it very difficult to get access to the worst affected areas because the roads leading to this remote part of the prefecture have been destroyed by the quake, Jake. All right, Hannah Montgomery, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up as we wait for Donald Trump's likely appeal to those states trying to remove him from their 2024 ballot, CNN is learning specifically how he's pushing back in another case. His reported plans to make a, quote, mega freak show of the federal election subversion charges against him from special counsel Jack Smith. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number Smart Beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number Smart Beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we're back with our Law and Justice lead. At any moment, we should learn about Donald Trump's legal team's filing appeals and the two 14th Amendment rulings, which are right now keeping the former president off the ballots in Colorado and in Maine. This as we're getting a better sense of the defense strategies Trump plans to use in the upcoming federal election subversion case. CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed uh, joins us now. And Paul, let's start with those defense strategies. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine today goes as far to say that Trump's lawyers want to turn the trial, this Jack Smith trial about uh, Trump uh, trying to overturn the election, uh, they want to turn it into a, quote, mega freak show. They want to push conspiracy theories about the 2020 election and the special 
counsel's office. Now, I know CNN's taken a closer look at some court filings back to November. What, what do they tell us? Are we in going to have a MAGA freak show? The special counsel is concerned about bringing some disinformation into the courtroom and potentially confusing jurors. Now look, the election subversion case is currently on hold while Trump litigates his larger questions about immunity. One of his former lawyers told me over the weekend, look, he's not going to prevail on this question of immunity. Gave it about a 50-50 chance that this case goes to trial this year. But if it does, he's going to need a defense. So they're going to try a few things. One argument they may try to make is foreign interference, that there was a good faith belief that a foreign government could have been meddling in the election, and that's why he didn't trust the outcome. Now, Trump and his lawyers, they've been asking for government documents, classified information. Uh, they've asked for documents related to Iran and China. They've even pointed to the solar winds hack in December 2020 to say, look, there was foreign meddling. Potentially that happened in the election, too. But again, the special counsel says, look, there's no connection here, and they don't want him bringing random information and random theories into the courtroom. And Trump's team also plans to push arguments of, of political bias. Yeah, I mean, not a terrible surprise, right? That's what they argue in the court of public opinion. No surprise to try to bring that into the courtroom. But you run into the same problem. There's no evidence to really support this. Remember, a lot of the key witnesses were members of his cabinet. Even his former vice president, Mike Pence, could be called. But he's going to try to argue that intelligence officials, other folks, have it out for him. I mean, there's also this question uh, of whether he had a good faith belief uh, that there was something wrong with the election. But once again, they're going to use a lot of people who were working for him, who he personally selected, who told him, no, in fact, you lost. And there's a real concern. And this is why prosecutors keep arguing. They want to limit the defenses that he can present because they don't want him confusing the jury. Now, the judge, Judge Tanya Chutkin, she's the one who will ultimately rule on which one of these defenses uh, he can or cannot use. But currently the case is on hold, so she can't make any decisions. And let's talk about this 14th Amendment cases in Colorado and Maine, where they argue Donald Trump uh, was involved in an insurrection. Therefore, he's ineligible for the presidency. They're keeping Trump off the ballot theoretically in those two states. Any sense of the timing of Trump's expected appeals there? I want to lean into the word expected here, Jake, uh, but speaking with sources this morning, Trump is still expected to file an appeal to the Supreme Court on the Colorado decision and an appeal within the court system of Maine to the Superior Court in Maine today. We still expect that. But look, Colorado, that decision is two weeks old. Time is of the essence. It's unclear what is taking the Trump legal team so long to file these appeals. But as of right now, we expect them right now. And we also expect, Jake, the Supreme Court really has to weigh in here. This is what they're designed to do. Clarify constitutional questions, settle disputes among states. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much and Happy New Year to you. Turning now to our 2024 lead. Cue the music. Yes. Yes. We're in the final sprint to the official start of the 2024 campaign season. The Republican Iowa caucuses, they're just 13 days away. 13 days, that's less than two weeks. On January 15th, Iowans will gather in classrooms and post offices and churches and caucus. That will be followed by the New Hampshire primary on January 23rd. Today, the candidates are out on the campaign trail trying to sell their final message to voters. Our reporters are spread out tracking the candidates. CNN's Eva McKenz in Portsmouth, New Hampshire at a Nikki Haley event. CNN's Steve Contornos in Des Moines, Iowa, covering Ron DeSantis. CNN's Isaac DeVere is here in Washington with insights on President Biden's campaign. So Eva, New Hampshire, critical state for Nikki Haley if she wants to be seen as the main opponent to Trump. Critical indeed, Say I've lived in the state for 40 years. I attend most all of the primary opportunities we have. I think she's the strongest candidate I've ever seen. She's sane, she's rational, she's a problem solver, and she's absolutely direct and she's earnest. There's no drama. 
obviously, uh, uh, somebody hit a button a little earlier there, but that's a New Hampshire voter you were talking to. Yes, it sure was, Jake. And what we have seen here is Nikki Haley invest heavily. Upwards of $4 million the campaign has spent on ads, $18.5 million from the Associated Super PAC, all to speak directly to women like you just heard there. Uh, to give you a sense of the folks showing up to her rallies, they describe themselves as looking for someone who is reasonable. They are moderate voters. They may have voted for President Trump in 2016, voted for President Biden in 2020, and now looking for an alternative. That's the type of folks supporting Nikki Haley in this state. The big question is, even if she were to do well here, and enjoy some of this momentum. Can she carry this on to other states? Are there other of these sort of type of Republicans across the country in these early nominating contests? She'll be in Rye, New Hampshire tonight, and then she'll have a bevy of stops in the state tomorrow. She'll be joined on the campaign trail by popular governor here, Chris Sununu, Jake. And Steve, DeSantis is going to be in Iowa tomorrow where he is polling ahead of Haley right now, but still trailing Trump by 30 points. He has a new campaign ad out today. Um, tell us more about it. That's right, Jake. This is one of his closing message to Iowa voters here. And just like every other ca campaign ad that he has run and most of the ones that have come from his super PAC, there's little about the front runner in this race in this ad. They've corrupted our institutions, indoctrinated our kids, opened our border. Ron DeSantis is the only candidate who's defeated them. We beat the teachers union. We beat Fauci on COVID. I beat Soros. And as your president, I will not let you down. Now, even though this ad doesn't mention Trump, clearly he's adopting some of the rhetoric that Trump used successfully as a political candidate in 2016 and carried throughout his presidency. And that is something we have seen from Governor DeSantis time and time again. Yes, he is campaigning on his Florida record, but he is also campaigning that he can be the, pres the president that finishes the Trump agenda, building the wall, draining the swamp, all the things that Trump promised in 2016 that DeSantis said he hasn't done yet. And he will be here in Iowa tomorrow trying to get that message across to voters. And Isaac, you've been talking to sources close to the Biden campaign as the Republican primary plays out. What angle does the Biden campaign hope to hit on? Well, look, they are hoping, Jake, to take advantage of this moment and get people focused on what the candidates are actually talking about and say these are extreme visions of what the presidency would be, not only Donald Trump, but all the candidates. They do think Donald Trump is the likeliest nominee at this point, but they're ready to make that case against every single one of the candidates. These are dark visions, uh, extreme visions of the presidency, they'll say, and they want to get voters to start focusing on that, start thinking about it, not just in terms of the legal drama about Donald Trump, but what it would mean for him to return to the presidency. And they think they can do that in a parallel track to the next month for Joe Biden, which is going to be the buildup to the State of the Union, uh, likely at the beginning of February, when he's going to start talking more fulsomely about what his own vision of a second term would be. All right, Edward Isaac DeVere, Eva McKen, Steve Contorno, thanks to all of you. Look out for back-to-back -back CNN Republican presidential town halls this Thursday night, just two nights from now. CNN's Caitlin Collins is going to moderate the first conversation with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That will be at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then CNN anchor Aaron Burnett will host a town hall with former Ambassador Nikki Haley. Both are this Thursday night right here on CNN, 9 p.m., then 10 p.m. Eastern. And then next week... Dana Bash and I are going to moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate. That will be Wednesday, January 10th, just five days before the Republican Iowa caucuses. Breaking news moments ago.
Donald Trump's legal team filed the appeal in Maine after the state's top election official removed Trump from the primary ballot. And CNN's Paula Reid, we didn't let her even leave the table. She's still here. Uh, what does the appeal have to say? So here they're making multiple arguments about the fact that Trump was removed from the ballot in Maine. The first is that they're arguing that the secretary of state is biased against Trump. I want to emphasize that Maine is unique and that the first step uh, for questions of ballot eligibility go to the secretary of state. Now, she is a Democrat, but here uh, they're arguing that she has a pernicious bias against former President Trump. Now, they are also then moving on and arguing that she should not have the power uh, to make this kind of decision. Now, I reiterate, this is the process in Maine, right. but this is a larger question for the Supreme Court. And why I said moments ago, they really have to take up this larger issue. Uh, if Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution applies to presidents who engage in insurrections, who gets to arbitrate that, right? Who removes them from the ballot? Is it the state? Should they each come up with their own process or is there a role for Congress? Well, not surprisingly, uh, Trump's team argues that the individual states, particularly individual state, uh, state officials who are either appointed or elected should not have this kind of power. So they are appealing within the state court system in Maine. They're not yet appealing to the Supreme Court. Again, this is the process asking them to overturn the Secretary of State's decision and put him back on the ballot. Now, her decision is currently on pause, uh, so we're waiting to see how this resolves within the main court system. But at the same time, we're still waiting for Trump to file his appeal to the Supreme Court about the Colorado decision. Said it once, I've said it again, Jake. This is a big mess. We have disputes among states, everybody making decisions different ways, different opinions on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court must weigh in. Well, that, that's federalism, right? And that's... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Paula Reed, thanks so much. Coming up, the assassination today of a senior member of Hamas and the explosion that led to his killing. Stay with us. Topping our world lead, a senior Hamas leader based in Lebanon has been assassinated, according to Hamas. Hamas says Salah al-Aruri was one of the founding members of what they call its military wing, considered so integral to Hamas's terrorist activities. The U.S. issued up to a $5 million reward for information on him in 2015. Moments ago, Israel's finance minister said all of Israel's enemies will, quote, perish, though Israel has not officially taken responsibility for the assassination. As U.S. officials tell CNN analyst Barak Ravid that Israel did not notify the U.S. in advance of the attack, rather as it was ongoing. CNN's Nada Bashir is in Beirut on the scene of the deadly strike. And Nada, how significant of a, a figure was al-Aruri within Hamas? Well, Jake, look, we're talking about the uh, number two, really, in Hamas's political bureau, as you mentioned there. He is considered one of the uh, founders of the Al-Qassam brigades, the military wing of Hamas. So this is a significant escalation. And as you can see behind me, Crowds have gathered of media. This is a significant development. There are concerns about how this could uh, spread out beyond. Uh, of course, this is somewhat unprecedented to see this kind of attack uh, inside Beirut. Remember, this is the capital, not southern Lebanon, where we do tend to see uh, these skirmishes between Israel and Lebanon. We've heard from the Lebanese National News Agency, who has reported uh, they are saying three explosions. They have described this as an aerial strike. And we've been hearing uh, from locals, we've been speaking to shop owners just a few doors down who've described hearing three loud explosions uh, when the incident took place. Now, of course, as you mentioned, uh, Israel has not claimed responsibility for the incident. In fact, we reached out to the Israeli military. Uh, they declined to comment. We heard a little earlier from Mark Regev, the senior advisor 
to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He said that Israel was not claiming responsibility for that. Whoever carried out this attack was clearly not targeting the Lebanese state, not targeting Hezbollah, crucially. Uh, but as you can see behind me, I mean, the debris here is spread out for at least 100 meters around it. But if you look at the uh, site of the explosion, it is clearly very precise, very targeted. Is Israel already bracing for retaliation, considering that Hezbollah vowed that they would strike back if Israel carried out any uh, such actions in Lebanon? Well, look, there has been mounting concern uh, for weeks now over the escalation. We could see potential retaliations across the border. Important to underscore, we are talking about a senior Hamas official here. But as you mentioned, Hezbollah has been clear. Any attack on Lebanese territory would, according to Hezbollah officials, trigger a fierce response on Lebanese territory. Now, important to note that this comes in the context of building tensions on the border. We have seen Israel carrying out uh, airstrikes on Lebanese villages on that southern uh, border region. We have seen civilians killed as well as journalists who had been reporting there. Hezbollah in turn has been targeting Israeli positions across the border. And of course, we are expecting to hear from the chief uh, of uh, Hezbollah tomorrow, Hassan Nasrallah. All eyes will be watching to see what he has to say about this latest incident. And not as we enter this new year, civilians in Gaza, millions, are, are struggling to survive uh, under the intense Israeli bombardment of Hamas, which, which embeds uh, within the population. And of course, this, this tragic lack of humanitarian aid getting through uh, starvation, disease. Uh, what's the latest on the ground there? We've been hearing those repeated calls from aid agencies from the UN. There needs to be more aid getting into the Gaza Strip. Crucially, the vast majority of Gaza's population are now said to be facing an acute hunger crisis. That is a primary point of concern. The amount of aid we're seeing getting in, the amount of food getting into the Gaza Strip is just a drop in the bucket in comparison to what is needed. Now we are hearing those warnings of the spread of diseases uh, around the civilian population, particularly the hundreds of thousands now displaced taking shelter in those tent cities in the south. We're hearing about skin diseases of respiratory infections spreading across uh, parts of southern Gaza. And as we know, some 1.9 Palestinians in Gaza are now internally displaced with nowhere else to turn. And there is real concern now as the Israeli military sets to expand its military operation. Of course, they say they are targeting Hamas, but this is a densely populated area. The vast majority of civilians now crammed into this very small area in southern Gaza with nowhere else to go. And of course, as we've seen, that humanitarian situation is only getting worse by the day. Jake? Rana Bashir in Beirut, thank you so much. Coming up next, the police in New York are now revealing about the man they say intentionally crashed a car into a crowd outside a New Year's concert. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead, a mystery and the lingering questions after a new, deadly New Year's attack here in the United States. This happened early yesterday morning outside an arena in Rochester in New York State when a man tried to ram an SUV into a crowd getting out of a New Year's Eve concert. Two people were killed, but as CNN's Bryn Gingrass reports for us now, authorities think this could have been much worse. A fiery crash outside a New York concert hall after a car rammed into another vehicle, setting off an explosion. It was crazy to see that kind of fire. The flames were probably still like 15 feet high. Killing two people, injuring nine others, including one critically hurt nearby, and authorities say it appears to be intentional. You saw the carnage of the cars and the 
one car burnt up and car pieces everywhere. And it, it was surreal to think, wow, this happened right here. It wasn't even an hour into the new year when hundreds of concert goers exited the Kodak Center in Rochester, New York. That's when police say 35-year-old Michael Avery, driving a rented SUV packed with gas canisters, drove towards a pedestrian crossing and collided with a rideshare vehicle, killing the passengers inside. Avery also died later at the hospital. Investigators are still combing through evidence recovered from his vehicle, but nothing thus far has been recovered that provides any additional insight into why this occurred. What investigators do know is Avery traveled in his own car from Syracuse to Rochester on or around December 27th and checked into a nearby hotel. On December 29th, police say Avery picked up a rental car. And on December 30th, images like this one show he was alone when he bought gas canisters and filled them. It's a very highly uh, organized, structured, planned attack by this person for whatever reason. The only question for investigators at this point is why did he do it and was anyone else involved? To help answer those questions, authorities with the Joint Terrorism Task Force and FBI executing search warrants at various locations. Additionally, we have not uncovered any information leading us to believe that the actions of Michael Avery on New Year's Eve were motivated by any form of political or social biases. Avery's family telling authorities they believe he suffered from an undiagnosed mental illness. I think for us as we go into the new year is to remember the victims of this horrific accident. They were expecting to be able to ring in the new year and have a good time, but instead we have individuals that are now going to be burying family members, and we have people who have now life-altering in injuries uh, because of the choices um, that this suspect made. So like you just saw, Jake, a lot of questions still outstanding, like why this concert venue? Why at this time authorities looking into several locations like uh, his car, his residence in Syracuse, the hotel room he rented, hoping hoping to recover some evidence that might point to some answers. Jake. All right, Bryn Gingras, thanks so much. More breaking news for you. New criminal charges against New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez involving a, a different foreign country. That's next. Plus, Donald Trump's legal team just appealed the decision in Maine the decision to remove him from the state's 2024 ballot. What happens next? What this means for the race with the nation's primary season officially set to begin in just 13 days. We'll be right back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour just in, brand new charges against Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey going further than the accusations about gold bars luxury cars and cool hard cash now another country is in the pockets of the new jersey senator allegedly plus the scramble to learn how two planes ended up on a collision course on an airport runway in japan before bursting into flames video shows the panic on the passenger plane as nearly 400 people on board all escaped alive before the inferno and leading this hour the breaking news the first major court filing from donald trump in 2024 just a short while ago his team 
appealed the decision from Maine to remove him from the state's primary ballot. This is just one of many legal issues facing Mr. Trump colliding with the 2024 presidential election. CNN's Evan Pettis is here. And Evan, what, what is Trump's team basing this appeal in Maine on? Well, what they're saying, uh, Jake, is that the uh, Maine Secretary of State exceeded her, her authority to disqualify the former president based on the, the 14th Amendment. They say also that the 14th Amendment, the Section 3, which says that uh, you can't hold certain offices if you have engaged in insurrection against the United States, that that doesn't apply to the, uh, to the office of the president, that this is not something that should even apply here. And they also say that uh, you know, she is basing this on uh, all kinds of facts that are not true, that Trump is not actually uh, an insurrectionist. So uh, on, uh, based on those arguments, the former president uh, and his legal team are saying that the action by the Secretary of State in Maine to disqualify the former president from the, from the ballot uh, should not be allowed to stand. Of course, what this means now, just by filing this appeal, right, this, this stays that action. This means that he will continue to be listed uh, uh, on the ballot there in Maine pending the litigation that this now kicks off. And Trump is still facing similar challenges to his candidacy, including in Colorado, in Colorado right. uh, which also used the same 14th Amendment argument right. uh, that if you participated in an insurrection, engaged in insurrection, you're ineligible right. for the presidency. How could an appeal of the Colorado ruling uh, play out, given that presumably that will go directly to the U.S. Supreme Court because it's by the Colorado Supreme Court. Right, exactly. And that, that one's much further ahead because obviously there was a trial that was held by a, a lower court judge and, and a ruling from the, the state Supreme Court. What we expect, Jake, any minute now, the, the former president's legal team will file uh, a, a request with the U.S. Supreme Court to try to stay and to, to stay that, that, that ruling from the, the, the Colorado Supreme Court and to overturn it. Uh, just by doing that, we expect that he will be able to be listed on the Colorado ballot, the primary ballot, because the deadline for that to be to be finalized is tomorrow. And whatever the U.S. Supreme Court decides is going to be the final answer. Mm. All right. Evan Pettis, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Tom Dupree, the former principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George W. Bush. Tom, let's start with Trump's uh, appeal in Maine, which just dropped. His lawyers are arguing that the secretary of state in Maine uh, who made this decision to remove from from the ballot. They say she exceeded her authority and she is politically biased against Trump's. She's a Democrat, I believe, and certainly not a fan of Trump. Um, that's true. Uh, but are those solid legal arguments? I think the Trump legal team, Jake, is on much stronger ground on their legal arguments about whether the 14th Amendment applies to the president, whether it's self-executing, so to speak, rather than going after the alleged political bias of the Maine Secretary of State. I don't think that's an argument that will get a lot of traction in the upper courts. I understand why they're making that argument to kind of set the table and try to put this in context of what they view as a politicized decision. But at the end of the day, I think their legal argument is going to rise or fall depending on those other constitutional challenges to her ruling. And Tom, Oregon could be the next state, a third state that tries to bar Trump uh, from a primary ballot. Should Trump's legal team be concerned about that state and, and even more joining the effort? 
Well, I think they need to be concerned anywhere that people are trying to strike him from the ballot. I mean, if you're former President Trump's lawyer and there are states that are trying to knock you off the ballot, absolutely, you have to fight that wherever it happens. That said, I don't think that the Oregon proceedings are ultimately going to kind of drive the overall outcome here. I think, as Evan reported, it's really the Colorado case that's kind of the lead dog in this fight. That's the case that's going to go up first to the United States Supreme Court. And I think there's a very good chance that if and when the United States Supreme Court takes the Colorado case, it will announce a rule of law, a rule of decision that will apply to all of the states considering these 14th Amendment challenges. So whatever the Supreme Court says in the Colorado case, I think will likely apply also to the proceedings in Maine and to Oregon. There's this article today in Rolling Stone magazine saying that Trump's attorneys are going to turn uh, the federal election subversion case uh, from uh, special counsel Jack Smith into a, quote, MAGA freak show and try to flood the trial uh, with all these various conspiracy uh, theories. Um, do you think they'll be able to succeed in, in getting these conspiracy theories uh, into the trial? And what impact could that, that have? From what we've seen of the district court judge here, Jake, I think the Trump team is going to have an uphill battle if they try to flood the zone with irrelevant information along those lines. We have seen that this is a judge who is pretty serious about running a tight ship in her courtroom, about ensuring that the case focuses on the facts, on the legal issues. And I think she'll frankly probably ratchet it up a little bit once a jury is impaneled and starts hearing evidence in this case. I think she is going to be very protective of the evidence that comes into the record, the evidence that this jury hears. Years, and so I suspect that she will do her best. I don't know. We'll see how successful she is, but she will do her best to keep the Trump legal team on a fairly tight leash in terms of the types of evidence that they can introduce at this trial. What concerns do you have when you see how heavily involved the U.S. Supreme Court already is in this year's presidential election, uh, especially, I mean, when you think of Bush v. Gore uh, in 2000, uh, which was only after the election did they get involved? Right. And I think that's a real concern, Jake. I think that there's certainly a perception um, out there in, in the United States. Uh, a lot of people have the view that the Supreme Court and, frankly, a lot of our courts are political actors and make decisions on political grounds rather than on legal or constitutional grounds. And I think that danger is heightened any time the Supreme Court dives into the political fray. I think the justices themselves are very aware of that concern. Certainly, Chief Justice Roberts is very protective of the institution. And so this is not a job that they take lightly. I don't think any of the justices have any eagerness to get involved in the 2024 election. In fact, they'd like to stay away from it if they can. However, I think events are leaving them virtually no choice. So I think it's something they are going to have to get involved in, but I think they are going to be very judicious in the number of cases that they decide, and they are going to do their absolute best to decide these cases in a way that insulates them, if possible, from any taint of politics or suggestion that they're politically motivated here. All right, Tom Dupree, thanks so much. Let's turn now to some breaking news. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat, is now facing new allegations from federal prosecutors relating to his bribery and extortion scheme, allegedly. A superseding indictment was just made public, and CNN's Kara Scannell's been going over it for us. Kara, what are the prosecutors now alleging about Senator Menendez? 
So, Jake, you may remember when Menendez was first indicted, he was charged with aiding the government of Egypt and also an extensive corruption and bribery scheme. These new allegations that were brought up by an indictment today by the grand jury alleges that Menendez had taken steps to benefit the country of Qatar. Now, this is part of the bribery allegations. He's not accused of being a foreign agent for Qatar. But according to prosecutors, Menendez had um, accepted some gifts, including race car tickets from the government of Egypt. And he was doing this to try to help his friend, another co-defendant in this case, a New Jersey real estate developer, obtain a multi-million dollar investment from the Qatari Investment Fund. According to prosecutors, Menendez had initiated meetings with a member of the royal family in Qatar with this businessman and made other introductions. They also had several private meetings together. And in exchange, Menendez had um, said made public statements that were favorable and supportive, praising Qatar. And he, in an encrypted text message in this indictment, they alleged that he had encouraged his friend, the businessman, to send these public statements praising Qatar to the Qatari officials to try to help smooth over this deal. And before a meeting that the New Jersey businessmen had had in London with the Qatari investors. Uh, while they were still trying to negotiate this deal, Menendez allegedly sent a text message to one of the Qatari officials encouraging him to move ahead. So prosecutors say in exchange for this, Menendez had received race car tickets from the Qataris and a gold bar from the New Jersey businessmen. Uh, Menendez has pleaded not guilty to the other charges. Uh, he has vigorously denied any wrongdoing, and he has not stepped down uh, from the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, where he was was chairman until the initial indictment came down. He is due to go to trial in May. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell with the latest on Senator Bob Menendez. Thanks so much. Uh, with 13 days until the Iowa caucuses, man, only 13 days, new attack ads are rolling out from Donald Trump's Republican rivals, how the candidates ch are choosing to make their closing arguments. And one major factor not mentioned in the new videos, that's next. In our 2024 lead, the first actual votes are in less than two weeks. Cue the music. Yes. That's my jam and, and my panelists. It's their jam, too. It's officially January, which means we are literally days away from the official start of the 2024 primary season, primary and caucus season, I should say. CNN is hosting a debate between Ambassador Nikki Haley and Governor Ron DeSantis in Des Moines, Iowa next week. Dana Bash and I will be moderating that on Wednesday night. The state's Republican caucuses will be the following week. That's just 13 days from today, followed by the New Hampshire primary on January 23rd. To help us kick off this big political month, we have with us Republican pollster and strategist uh, Kristen Soltis-Anderson and Democratic strategist uh, Karen Finney. Kristen, it's your jam, right? The music. It is. You love it. It is. I said, like, my blood pressure goes up. You love higher. it. You love it. It's like ACDC. First of all, let's talk about our top story today. Trump's legal team is appealing the decision by Maine Secretary of State to try to remove him from the state's primary ballot. We've never seen anything like this. Um, of course, we saw, we've also never seen a, a president actually trying to foment uh, a violence at the Capitol to stop the counting of votes. Uh, but what do you make of it? I continue to believe that every time these states take him off the ballot, whether the primary or eventually if he becomes the nominee, try to do it for the general, that it would be appropriate for the Supreme Court to intervene because I don't think that in this case it's good for voters to not have the chance to decide that they don't want to have Donald Trump. And I frankly think it would be politically smart for Joe Biden to come out and say, everybody who is on my side, I get it. I've said that what I think he did that day was insurrection, but I'm not afraid of this guy. And I think voters are going to choose me in the end. I think that'd be politically savvy for him. What do you think? I agree with that point. I would love to see him say, I'm not afraid of him. I'm going to take you on. Let's do this. But 
I do think what's interesting about the main case is, remember, he was on CNN earlier today. The gentleman who brought the case is a Republican state senator who had voted for Trump, who was so horrified by January 6th that he filed this. He didn't think he should be on the ballot. What's important about that is we are seeing in the polls, we saw in that big New York Times poll, there is increasingly vote. There are increasingly voters, Republican independents, who say a conviction would be a factor that would have them not vote for Trump. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as these cases start, because, it, you know, that met the calendar didn't show the court dates in between all the court dates. Right. We're learning lots of new information every week. I expect that pace is going to kick up here in January. And we don't know what impact that may have on general election voters in the way that we're seeing, though, in the primary, you know, Trump is obviously doing quite well. So speaking of the primary, uh, Ambassador Haley's out with a new campaign ad attacking Governor DeSantis. Uh, here's a little clip. Ron DeSantis is lying because he's losing. DeSantis called China Florida's most important trading partner. DeSantis even allowed a Chinese military contractor to expand just miles from a U.S. naval base. Phony Ron DeSantis. Too lame to leave, too weak to win. Honestly, I, I'm not numb to it. That's strong language. Phony Ron DeSantis, too lame to lead, too weak to win. What do you think? Well, I think she knows that coming in a strong second in Iowa is something that would very much help her chances in New Hampshire. You saw her test out some of these arguments in the last Republican debate. And you've also seen Ron DeSantis try to hit her on the issue of China as well. Because frankly, being tough on China is one of those issues that does unify the more conventional establishment wing of the GOP with the more MAGA Trump kind of, of wing. So by making these attacks, I'm going after someone else for not being tough enough on China. It's a way to both try to knock somebody else off your, your vote share, but also make the case that you are strong and tough. That's why both DeSantis and Haley have chosen this issue to go after one another. But they're both trailing, uh, as of now, uh, DeSantis uh, in Iowa by around 30 points. Although we should say 13 days is a lifetime. Anything could happen. But what do you make of it? Literally every, anything. Look, I think she also knew that she has to show toughness. And, and since she can't quite bring herself to attack Trump, why not go after Ron DeSantis and Ron DeSantis having attacked her on China? Again, it's it's kind of a way to just muddy the waters and make it a wash. So we have this debate that Dana and I will be moderating uh, coming up. And, and um, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis have both qualified for the stage. As of now, the only other person that is qualified in terms of the, the requirements is, is Donald Trump. But he has said he's not going to attend. Haley put out a statement today that says with only three candidates qualifying, it's time for Donald Trump to show up. As the debate stage continues to shrink, it's getting harder for Donald Trump to hide. And a DeSantis spokesperson posted on Twitter, now known as X, we understand Donald Trump is scared to get on the stage because he'd have to finally explain why he didn't build the wall, add nearly $8 trillion to the debt, and turn the country over to Fauci. But even Gavin Newsom had the courage to stand on the stage to debate his own failed record against Ron DeSantis. Do you think it still, at this point is a good strategy for Donald Trump to skip these debates. I mean, now this is the first one that's going to be this small. I can understand his not going to like one where there's like 30 people, but sure. DeSantis and Haley are both credible candidates. He should be there, shouldn't so he? So we're, we're in football playoff season right now, and that's the way I used to hear voters talk about this a couple of months ago, that it was kind of okay for Donald Trump to sit out 
the quarterfinals, maybe even the semifinals, but we've reached the final round. Iowa's less than two weeks away. And so if it was ever going to hurt Donald Trump, missing this debate on the 10th may be the one, but I'm still skeptical that him doing anything but playing a very safe strategy, just get through Iowa, have the blowout that he's expecting, that's probably the safer strategy. But if it was ever going to hurt him, this is when it would hurt him. But you know what? If you're Donald Trump, you have there's no reason to show up. So bad for CNN and the American public, although he's going to be on Fox. But, you know, for, from his perspective, his campaign has done so much also behind the scenes to make sure that they can shore up this nomination by March you know, changing the rules in California, some of the things they're doing with the RNC. Again, he doesn't have to show up, A, because he's got the support and the numbers. B, they're working behind the scenes to rig, to use his term, the rules. So why show up when you can just keep doing what you're doing? I mean, there's lots of there's lots of answers I could give you. <laughs> yes. One is it shows respect for the American people and Republican voters, right? I mean, like I'm willing to take some tough questions. He's not going to face any tough questions going before Fox. No. I mean, I you mean, know, I agree with you. I just think Trump is running more like we ran. We saw him in 2016, with the benefit of the relationships he has again with the GOP uh, state party chairs and the RNC. He's trying to run as a surgeon and being on the stage. I agree with you that it would be the right thing to do. I, just, I don't even just mean the right thing. Like, you know, this, this just reminds me of something. I'm not comparing Trump and Obama. So everybody put down your laptops, put down your, <laughs> your iPhones. But I do remember in 2012, I was a White House correspondent and Obama went like a year or so only really doing generally soft interviews, friendly interviews. And that first debate with Romney, he whiffed. He was bad because he hadn't been with anybody really challenging him. Now, I don't know what's going to happen when uh, and if Biden and Trump actually ever face off, but I don't think Trump's going to be in fight and shape. It's total risk aversion. But frankly, if I was Donald Trump right now, that's the strategy I would pick, risk aversion. Even knowing that every time he's tried to counter-program one of these debates, it's been kind of a dud, if not a disaster. Uh, and I don't expect that he's going to make a lot of fireworks or do a lot that will really change the dynamics of the race. He doesn't want to change the dynamics of the race because right now he's on track to be the Republican nominee. But can I tell you another theory I've heard posited from a Republican friend is that he doesn't want to stand next to these two young, attractive, smart. I'm not talking about me and Dana. I'm talking about Ron DeSantis <laughs> and Nikki Haley. He doesn't because they this is this other person's theory. So, again, put down your phones. But like he thinks that they will make him look old and yeah. like he's lost a step. That could be part of the consideration. I mean, look, he is able to show that he's in fighting shape when he comes out of the courtroom, right? And he spouts off or in some of these tweets he puts on, or not tweets, on, on Truth Social. And again, it's a way to control the dosage. And again, I think that's part of the, the campaign's strategy here. And you're right, he would, the, your, whoever this theory belongs to is correct. He would look the difference would be far more apparent standing on a stage with them. All right. Thanks to both of you. Great to see both of you. A reminder, <laughs> happy new year to both of you. A reminder, CNN Republican presidential debate. It's next Wednesday. I'm going to moderate alongside my friend and colleague, Dana Bash. It's live from Des Moines at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up next on The Lead, what is now an international effort to investigate this? A deadly collision at an airport in Tokyo, the most populated city in the world. Five people on one plane died. All 379 people on the other survived, thankfully. Could something like this theoretically happen at an airport near you? Stay with us.
In our world lead, investigators in Japan are currently trying to figure out how two planes ended up on a collision course before exploding into a massive fireball. All passengers and crew on board the Japan Airlines flight were thankfully able to evacuate the burning plane, but the people on the Coast Guard plane were not so lucky. Seen as Will Ripley's in Tokyo following the miraculous escape and the investigation into the crash that also killed the five crew members on board the Japanese Coast Guard aircraft. A Japan Airlines jet touches down in Tokyo, the cabin calm until passengers look out the windows. We saw fire coming out of the engines, and I found it strange, Satoshi Yamake tells CNN. Within seconds, black smoke billowing through the aircraft. The Airbus A350-900, packed with nearly 400 passengers and crew, including parents with young children. He says some passengers were scared, especially the kids and women. The scene outside, even scarier. People on other planes captured the chaos. And just as we were starting to do speed, we heard that big bang, and I turned, and I saw that flame that was making a trace, and then we saw the flame that was in flame. The runway's full for a Tuesday evening. Haneda Airport, in the heart of Tokyo, handling extra holiday traffic, and a Japan Coast Guard plane with six crew members carrying badly needed relief to parts of Japan jolted by a massive 7.5 magnitude earthquake. The quake causing widespread destruction, dozens of deaths just hours into the new year. Japan's transportation minister says the Coast Guard captain was badly hurt, five other crew members killed. A very different outcome for the Japan Airlines jet. With just seconds to spare, 12 crew members safely evacuated all 367 passengers, including eight children under the age of two. Only a handful had to go to the hospital. Everyone walked away as flames fully engulfed the plane. For a nation obsessed with transportation safety, one burning question, how could the new year begin like this? And there is new cockpit audio, Jake, revealing that the plane, the Japan Airlines jet, did have clearance to land. Everything was normal until all of a sudden uh, they were right uh, on top of this Coast Guard aircraft, both planes, with that very violent explosion. It is truly extraordinary uh, that there are about 400 people who are alive this morning uh, as the Japan now investigates why those four Coast Guard, five Coast Guard crew members died, why those, both of those planes were on the same runway at the same time, a runway that is still closed at this hour, Jake. All right, well, Ripley, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's aviation analyst, Miles O'Brien. Um, Miles, CNN's obtained... This audio of Japan Airlines flight crew reading back landing clearance, indicating that that plane had been cleared to land. What does that tell you uh, about the role of air traffic control and, and the role that it may have played in the situation? Well, it does appear, Jake, uh, that the, the balance of concern and blame is heading in the direction of that uh, Coast Guard aircraft uh, flown by the Japanese. But there's still more of this tale to be unfolding here, and that is the relative confusion that can exist between the person on the frequency talking to landing aircraft, the tower frequency, and the ground frequency, which is another frequency and another person. And if there was some sort of uh, disconnect between those two individuals, that could be a factor. Uh, there are reports that the um, 
Coast Guard aircraft was told to hold short of that runway and for reasons we don't understand had obviously taxied into it. So these things will get sorted out. Uh, there are tapes that will be played both in the cockpits and uh, of course the air traffic control radio communications. And of course, individuals in each of those three places, the air traffic control, the Airbus, and the Coast Guard aircraft are all able to testify to what they thought was happening. So it'll it'll come out very soon. When you look at the huge fireball that erupted at the moment of impact, why do you think the Coast Guard plane was the only aircraft to sustain fatalities? Well, it's some of this is just sheer mass and physics. An Airbus A350 is a huge aircraft, upwards of 14, 400 people versus a twin-engine turboprop. And so uh, some of that... Perhaps, too, uh, the crew, it appears, might have seen something at the last minute and tried to make it hop over the aircraft somewhat to make it more of a glancing blow. Uh, but the fact is, it's still an extraordinary event here that we're talking about this uh, really dramatic collision and 379 people, every last person on board that airliner survived. It's, a, it's truly extraordinary and a testament to a little bit of technology a sharp cabin crew that did their job well. And frankly, let's not forget that ultimately these passengers saved themselves by getting up in a relatively orderly way, not trying to get their carry-on bag and sliding down those slides. And they're all alive today as a result. Safety regulations require the evacuation of all passengers in 90 seconds, 90 seconds. So while it's a miracle, everyone on board the Japan Airlines flight survived, this evacuation apparently followed protocol. Yeah, you know, um, I don't I don't love the term miracle because so much work has gone into this idea, so much uh, effort in putting uh, less flammable materials inside these aircraft cabins, so much uh, thought into how many exits and slides and, and what the flight crew should say and what how they should execute all that. All that came together here. But I will say this, Jake, a lot of us were skeptical on these big, wide-bodied aircraft whether it really was practical to get some uh, a group a group that large out of an aircraft in that much time. Uh, and here we have a real life demonstration that it can be done. Uh, so, you know, all of us who fly should bear this in mind, pay a little attention to that briefing. There are crashes that are survivable, uh, but it's not purely by chance. All right. Well, good point. Good point. Miles O'Brien, thanks so much. Coming up next, Russia's new air assault launching at least 500 missiles and drones on Ukraine in the last five days alone, and some dangerously close to NATO territory in Poland. Stay with us. Back with our world lead as Russia pummels Ukraine with airstrikes, 500 this week, according to Ukraine. Poland. Poland is also on high alert. Its military scrambled fighter jets earlier today in order to secure Polish airspace during the latest Russian barrage on Ukraine. This just days after Polish authorities say a Russian missile entered, then disappeared off their radar. CNN's Nick Robertson reports now on the latest deadly Russian attacks on Ukrainian civilians as the country nearing two years of war begins 2024, mourning the dozens killed since Friday. Ukrainians on the receiving end of another massive missile salvo from Russia. The new year beginning just as the last one ended, facing ferocious attacks, not on the front lines, but hitting civilians in cities 
Olena, a retired figure skating coach, describes her near miss. The house rocked, the TV went out, there was a violent rumble, she says. It was scary. I didn't know what to do. The fourth floor was on fire. Anna, who also had a near miss, both angry and lucky. It was hell. It was real hell. It was a direct hit with a kinsale in the yard, she says, right between the blocks of the building. It was just a complete shock. There are no military facilities around here. The capital, Kyiv, like last year, Putin's target of choice. Almost 100 missiles of various types. At least 70 missiles were shot down. Almost 60 of them were shot down in the Kyiv area. Kharkiv was also hit hard. In a rare and exclusive interview, the country's top general telling CNN civilians will die without continued Western support. The Air Force of Ukraine shot down all 10 Russian Kinjal missiles using Patriot surface-to-air missiles. This is a record. If these Kinjals had reached their targets, the consequences would have been catastrophic. The hypersonic Kinsal missile, one of Russia's fastest and potentially Ukrainian civilians' biggest threat. There is no reason to believe that the enemy will stop there. That is why we need more systems and ammunition for them. The northeastern city of Kharkiv, also bearing the brunt of Putin's New Year's Day promise to escalate strikes. Civilians, the casualties, despite Putin's claims to be targeting only military installations. As of now, there are 44 wounded, all civilians. One local resident died as a result of the strike on this location. There were three attacked areas in the city centre. The death toll climbing not long after he spoke. 2024, already on the same track as 2023. Pain and suffering in unwelcome abundance. Well, we know that Putin is going after the infrastructure, the vital infrastructure like electricity, which took a pummeling last year and hasn't been rebuilt properly. But what is really going after here, I think, is to create psychological as well as physical pain, because he knows and he's coming into 2024, I think, a lot more confidently than he came into 2023 as far as Ukraine is concerned. He knows that if he can beat down the population, it's going to make it much easier for him, or he can perhaps get more gains at the negotiating table, when eventually that happens. Putin plays a long game. This is part of it. All right, Nick Robertson, thanks so much. Uh, now to a different conflict and a courageous firsthand account of the horrors suffered as a hostage held by Hamas. I suffered a Holocaust, she said. 21-year-old Mia Shem was one of the first to try and flee the Nova Music Festival when Hamas attacked on October 7th. The tires of her car were shot out before she was shot in the arm and left for dead until she called out for help to a man she thought was a fellow concertgoer, but unfortunately was in fact a terrorist with Hamas. Mia Shem was held for 55 days and she recounted her traumatic experience to Channel 13 in Israel. She was first taken to a house in Gaza, she says, forced to tend to her own wounds in a windowless dark room. Mia 
Mia was taken to a hospital for surgery and then moved from house to house, forced to change her own bandages, kept in the dark without food for days at a time, she says. בואי תראי, בשביל להכיב לי, בואי תראי את אימא שלך כדי להכיב לי כאילו, לא בשביל בואי תראי איך היא מדברת בכתבה. מיה was forced to make a propaganda video for Hamas, claiming that she was being treated well, when of course nothing could have been further from the truth. As Israeli airstrikes landed around the houses where she was being held, she would force her hand out the bathroom window, hoping a drone might capture her tattoo and lead to her rescue. But then, then Mia was taken to the tunnels. אני לא יכולה לספר על זה יותר מדי. פגשתי, פגשתי חטופים בחמישה ימים האחרונים שלי במנהרות. שש אנשים, שבע אנשים, בחדר שתיים וחצי מטר לשתיים וחצי מטר, אחד על השני, בכלוב, מקבלים פיתה ביום, בלי אוויר. After five days underground in those tunnels, Mia was one of the hostages released uh, in a negotiation, and she was brought by the Red Cross to the IDF, the Israel Defense Forces, and then into the waiting arms of her mother, who was obviously desperate to hold on, hold on to her daughter. But, but freedom, at this point, for Mia, brings its own pain and guilt. <laughs> Mia's now recovering at a hospital with her family by her side working to heal the damage done to her arm, the physical damage, sadly, those emotional wounds will surely be with her for the rest of her life. We'll be right back. International lead border negotiators are back in Washington, D.C. as the U.S. Senate resumes talks to try to find a compromise between Democrats and Republicans to increase border security. This comes as border crossings have reached a record high in December with border authorities encountering more than 225,000 migrants. CNN's Ed Lavender is at the border in Eagle Pass, Texas. Ed, what's happening at the border today? Well, you know, this news as these border negotiators are working comes uh, just as uh, a group of Republican lawmakers are expected to visit here in Eagle Pass uh, tomorrow. It's actually slowed down uh, rather dramatically from what we've seen in recent weeks. As you mentioned, Jake, uh, 225,000 uh, crossings here uh, in the month of December, according to Homeland Security statistics. And, you know, that is a staggering number, to say the least. So there were uh, thousands coming across here in Eagle Pass just several weeks ago. Spoke with the local sheriff here a little while ago who said uh, that it has been under 100 on a day like today, so it slowed down. But they also say they, they're bracing for more people to come in, in the future. But right now, on the eve of this visit from lawmakers, uh, a, a lull in the number of people crossing the border here in Eagle Pass. And turning to the border negotiations in the Senate, Ed, Republicans are still pushing uh, for tightening standards for people who seek asylum, uh, expanding expedited removals of migrants from the United States. Uh, where do negotiations stand right now? 
Well, Senator Chris Murphy said today uh, that a small group of Republican and Democratic senators have been meeting and negotiating throughout the holiday break uh, to try to get some common ground here on this border security bill. Uh, Senator Murphy says that they are hoping that they will have some sort of update to be able to give uh, senators when they come back to Washington next week. But he also says it's not clear that they will have uh, some sort of uh, concrete details and plan to present to all of them or any kind of deal or breakthrough on this border security bill by the time they make it to Washington next week. And today the Biden administration um, asked the Supreme Court to let the Border Patrol remove that razor uh, wire on the U.S.-Mexico border. This is obviously an escalation in this dispute between the Biden administration and the administration in Texas of Governor Abbott. Right. This has been going on for, for months now, uh, where uh, Texas authorities in various places from El Paso all the way down to the Rio Grande Valley have been putting razor wire right on the river's edge, uh, where it's making it much more difficult for people to get onto uh, the shore after wading through the river. You might be able to see it there in the distance. In some of those places, Border Patrol agents that I've spoken with over the last year have needed to cut through that wire to reach people who needed help or to just take people into custody. And this has become a huge flashpoint between Texas and the federal government. Uh, this has been tied up in courts. Uh, Texas suing to keep Border Patrol agents from cutting this uh, razor wire. And now the Biden administration asking the Supreme Court to reverse the, the previous court rulings to allow Border Patrol agents to cut through that wire if they need to. All right, Ed Lavendera, thanks so much. Tomorrow in his first CNN interview, I'm going to speak one-on-one -on -one with House Speaker Mike Johnson uh, about the border security. That's tomorrow uh, right here on the lead, beginning at 4 o'clock Eastern, and the subject again will be the border. Coming up, Mickey Mouse, as you have never seen him before. In our Earth Matters series, an important measurement key to one of the most pressing issues of our time, the Earth's dwindling supply of water. Today, California's Department of Water Resources conducted the first snow survey of the season, finding below average conditions just... 30% of the typical level of snow for January. And while California's reservoirs are still above average, thanks to last year's impressive snowpack, officials note there remains so much uncertainty about what the rest of this year's winter season may or may not bring. In our pop culture lead today, The Mouse is Out. That's a tag of a new movie trailer starring Mickey Mouse. But Mickey Mouse is Trap is not the next Disney classic. It is an upcoming live-action horror movie not produced by Disney. How is this possible? Well, the copyright for the 1928 Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse film expired yesterday, meaning that particular image of Mickey Mouse is now in the public domain. And it's not the only one. Another Mickey-based horror film was announced in a press release today. Not quite the fairy tale ending for the world's most famous mouse. Two big nights coming up on CNN. First, back-to-back -back CNN Republican presidential town halls this Thursday night. CNN's Caitlin Collins will moderate the first conversation with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 9 p.m. Eastern Thursday. And then Aaron Burnett will host a town hall with former Ambassador Nikki Haley. Both Thursday night, 9 and 10, only here on CNN. And then next week, Dana Bash and I will moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate. That will be on January 10th. 
just five days before the GOP Iowa caucuses. The debate is live from Des Moines at 9 p.m. Eastern. That's next Wednesday, a week from tomorrow, only here on CNN. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Happy New Year. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.